Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a potential vaccine for a neglected tropical disease. And the latest guidelines for human stem cell research. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Shamni Bundell. Trypanosomes are microscopic parasites, single-celled organisms that can cause serious diseases in humans and animals around the world. In livestock animals, certain species of trypanosomes can cause a disease called African animal trypanosomiasis, or Nagana, which causes significant economic impacts, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. Researchers have been trying to develop a vaccine to protect animals against this disease, but trypanosome parasites have an array of tricks up their sleeves to outwit the immune system. Delphine Ottomar is part of a team at the Sanger Institute in the UK who've been working on a way to identify potential antigens, proteins on the surface of the parasite, that the host immune system can recognise and use to target the invasive cell. They've used this system to develop a vaccine candidate that targets the species Trypanosoma vivax, and it's showing early promise. I wanted to find out more, so I gave Delphine a call and started by asking her how T. vivax affects livestock animals. So for the animals, it's um, yeah, it's mainly a loss of milk productivity, for example, and they have anemia. So they are becoming weak, but if the animals are not treated, they, they die from uh, Nagana. So what kind of treatments are available uh, against the diseases, against the trypanosomes? So it's mainly all drugs which have been developed in the 50s. They are targeting some enzyme um, in the parasites, but there is more and more resistance. So we need new medication to continue controlling the disease. And so your team has been working on a vaccine against a particular species of trypanosome. Why did you want to develop a vaccine rather than some sort of a treatment? Because it's cost-effective and um, because f- um, as the trypanosome are infected uh, wild animals, there is reservoir for these parasites. So v- this means that uh, your herd will always have to receive treatment, drugs, because they are will be 
continually uh, exposed to the parasites. So if you vaccinate your animals, it will be more efficient than just having to treat continually your, your animals. And have people tried to develop vaccines to these organisms before? Oh, yes, there were a lot of attempts. So some of them have shown partial protection, but nothing which could be tested in uh, clinical trials because the protection level was not enough. And what is it about these particular organisms that makes it so difficult to find a vaccine and develop something that allows our immune system to target them? They are extracellular parasites, so they are continuously exposed to the immune system. So they have developed a strategy to avoid the host immune system, which makes them very difficult to, to control the infection by the host. So usually our immune system or an animal immune system would be looking for particular antigens on the surface of, of the cell of this parasite um, that it could bind to and that it would sort of recognize as, as something to be destroyed. How does the parasite defend itself? So they are expressing on their surface one variant of a protein, which is the VSG, but they express a, a very high number of this protein. So it forms a coat to shield the parasite and to prevent the host antibody to access other um, surface proteins. So the immune system is there trying and failing to get past this sort of shield of VSG proteins. But when looking for a vaccine, um, you and your team wanted to find other potential targets. How did you go about looking for a target? For a long time, it was thought that the VSG were the only accessible by antibody proteins. But now we know from bioinformatics that there is also other proteins in between this uh, coat. So basically, we look into the genome of the parasite and um, we set up some criteria to just triage them. So we looked for genes that are coding for protein over uh, 300 uh, amino acids because it's the size of, size of the VSG protein. So we were thinking that maybe if the protein project beyond the VSG, they, are, they will be more accessible to host antibodies. And we also look at genes for which we had evidence for um, expression on the surface of the parasites. So once you had um, the sort of potential candidates for proteins which could be identified by the immune system, you then wanted to test them out as a vaccine. And what were the initial results when you tried this out in mice? So we have screened uh, 39 uh, protein in mice. And out of these uh, 39, we found one which give reasonably delay in the infection and one which, which give a sterile protection. It's the first time that in the murine model we, we get uh, this level of protection because before it was only partial uh, protection, which means that the mice develop a delayed infection, but at the end they still die. So with the candidate we, we get, we follow the mice for uh, up to six months and they never develop parasitemia after this. So these candidates that you found um, have been way more successful than previous attempts at, at finding a vaccine. Um, but this has been tested with a a particular species of trypanosome, so um, Trypanosoma vivax, um, and has also then obviously been tested in mice. Uh, does this mean that these candidates that you found could be used to make vaccines for cattle, for other kinds of livestock, even for humans? So the candidates that we found to be uh, protective against Trypanosoma vivax infection, unfortunately, will not be protective for other Trypanosome species. 
But the thing is, we can use uh, the approach that we have used for Trypanosoma vivax for the other parasites. We can be reasonably optimistic to, to find another good vaccine candidate for the other species of trypanosomes. So the idea is that your method, which is going through the genome, looking for these sort of key features and then testing it, could work for all the different trypanosome species. But T-Vivax does impact livestock. Are the candidates that you found in the mice useful for, for that? Yes, I mean, already, uh, just if we can control the Vivax infection in the field, it already would decrease a lot the burden of the uh, Nagana in Africa and also in South America. And what are the next steps in order to get there, to get to a place where we can start vaccinating livestock? We need to test this vaccine candidate in cattle, which is a big step because cattle vaccine studies are really expensive and not easy to set up. So there is a big step before getting a, a proper vaccine, but uh, we can be optimistic, I think. So quite a lot of challenges, but um, you must be really pleased with the, the the sort of leap forward of this particular finding. Yes, and especially because it, all, it opens the way for uh, looking at vaccine candidates in other species and um, in particular, the, the trypanosome species that are infected humans. That was Delphine Ottomont there, and you can find a link to her paper in the show notes. Coming up in the podcast, we'll be hearing how rapid advances in developmental biology have spurred a top stem cell society to revise their guidelines for biomedical research. Before that, though, it's time for the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. What's the secret to a long life? Well, for worker ants, it might be getting infected with a tapeworm. A team of researchers investigating the long-term consequences of tapeworm infections placed 58 colonies of ants in observation nests and checked on them every 10 days. In colonies that included ants infected with a tapeworm, the team showed that no uninfected workers were left alive when the experiment ended after three years, but half of the queens and infected workers were still kicking. The team are investigating the mechanism behind this parasite-triggered life extension. They think it may involve extra activity in some genes that help ant queens live longer. Infected ants also never left the nest, and that could be the tapeworm's influence as well. You see, to complete its life cycle, the parasite must be consumed by woodpeckers, which prey on ant nests. Read that research in full in Royal Society Open Science. Humanity has had a radical impact on life on Earth. But these changes may have started earlier than you think. Not with factories, but with farms. Scientists investigated how the abundance and composition of vegetation changed around the world after the last ice age. They analysed over a thousand fossilised pollen samples from the past 18,000 years, which came from all continents except Antarctica. The team found that global vegetation has been transformed over this period, first by the climate change that accompanied the end of the last glacial period, then, about 4,000 years ago, as agriculture intensified, the pace of change in global flora also accelerated, reaching or exceeding the rate of change seen at the end of the most recent ice age, showing that even before the Industrial Revolution, humans were capable of drastically affecting our environment. Read that research in full in Science.
Next up on the show today, there's some big news coming out in the world of stem cell studies. Specifically, it's that the International Society for Stem Cell Research, or the ISSCR, has today released the first update since 2016 to its well-respected set of guidelines for experiments involving stem cells. Now, this is a big deal, not just for the field, but for ethics debates and the development of policy around the world. To find out how these guidelines have changed and what the recommendations might mean for stem cell research, I gave Lauren Wolf, Nature's America's Bureau Chief, a call. Lauren, how are you doing? We haven't had you on the show for a little while. Oh, well, I'm hanging in there. I just got my second uh, COVID shot. So, yeah, you know, there seems to be a light at the end of this tunnel. Well, Lauren, you're on today to talk about the ISSCR's new guidelines. Could you maybe give us a sense of what these are for? It's basically a consensus from people in the field about what types of research should be done, like what's valuable in terms of stem cells and what type of research still shouldn't be done ethics-wise. So it's to keep up with advances in the field. You know, we can do things that we never used to be able to do before, but that doesn't necessarily mean we should do them. Well, let's maybe talk about some of those recommendations then. I think what will grab the headlines is maybe their recommendation about the 14-day rule. Yep, that's the big one. That's the one that everybody will be talking about. So the 14-day rule is a guideline that says that human embryos shouldn't be grown in a dish in the lab for more than two weeks past when they were fertilized. Where that came from, it's actually been around for decades, and it came after the very first successful IVF experiment when people realized, oh, we can start doing things with embryos outside of a person's body. I guess we should have some rules to guide this process. But what's interesting about it is that Back when it was put in place, nobody could even grow an embryo for 14 days outside of the body. It was more like five or six days. And in recent years, in 2016, two research teams figured out how to grow human embryos in a dish for up to 13 days. And then because of this 14-day rule, they, they terminated the experiment. And so now we're really in this time period where, okay, before we couldn't do this, now we can should we revise these these rules to enable us to look further into the future. And why have there been calls then to extend this time period? And what are the new recommendations saying? What's interesting is that because, well, I don't know if it's entirely because of this 14-day rule, but we actually don't know very much about what happens in terms of embryo development, human development after 14 days. And I've read in a number of places that kind of this period where we don't know much at all is like the 14 to 28-day period. And so the reason why scientists would like this rule extended is because that's the period at which we could learn, you know, why certain pregnancies don't work out, maybe why miscarriages happen, maybe why certain conditions go on to be developed in a baby. And I've also read if we knew more about that period, you might be able to help more IVF procedures be successful. And so that's one reason why they want to extend this. And so what the new recommendations are now saying is it's not throw all caution to the wind and do whatever you want. They haven't replaced the time frame. They haven't said now it's the 28-day rule. They've just said if anyone wants to do research with human embryos in the lab, 
there need to be a bunch of different approval steps. Everyone needs to be taken on a case-by-case basis. When you apply for your research project grant, you need to lay this out, and they kind of give recommendations about how regulatory authorities should look at these, you know, establishing what the value of this particular experiment is, why do you want to do it, what can you learn from it, how far do you need to grow the embryo in order to get the answers that you want, those kinds of things. And and it's not just embryos. There's been a bunch of papers that have come out recently about researchers who've managed to coax stem cells into things that look like embryos, but are really sort of complex models. That's another one of those advances. Some people call them embryoids. The thought behind that is that people can learn even more because you can grow those structures as models and grow them for longer and test drugs on them and do more things with them. And so that's one of the reasons why these were developed. And the 14-day rule doesn't necessarily apply to these structures, but I think there's been a lot of uncertainty around them. And so a lot of researchers have actually stopped growing them at 14 days anyway. I think one of the reasons why this change to the 14-day rule is useful is that if you want to show that these structures are indeed good model systems and represent an embryo and that if you're studying them, whatever's happening when you test them is reflective of what might happen to an embryo, you need to validate that, right? So you need to grow an embryo long enough as long as you're growing one of these structures, and then you'd be able to say, yes, they are mimicking each other at each step of this process. And then, you know, going forward, you could use the model system rather than the embryo. Hmm. I mean, it is worth noting that these are the ISSCR's recommendation for the 14-day rule, which has been put into law in some countries around the world and and is used as as a fairly sort of double underlined guideline in others. Has there been any pushback, do we know, from this recommendation coming out? You know, I have not seen anything thus far from, you know, official government bodies or anything like that. And and it is important to note that just because the ISSCR has made this recommendations, it doesn't mean that tomorrow any of these countries are going to say, okay, never mind, no more 14-day rule. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of evaluation of these recommendations and, and decisions. But as of now, you know, I haven't seen anyone pushing back against it entirely. Some of the researchers that we spoke to for this story have said they wish that there was more public participation involved in crafting these guidelines. Really, it was kind of the scientists did it themselves. The other arguments made against it that we've heard are, you know, scientists are just going to keep pushing the limit as they're able to do more things. And then I think on the other side of that, it's that, well, we made this limit a long time ago, and now we know a lot more about the science and we know enough to know that this 14-day could be extended. So I think there's arguments on both sides of the debate. If that's the recommendation that's going to get the headlines, it's important not to gloss over that there are other important recommendations in these new guidelines as well. What are they saying about CRISPR editing embryos, for example, which we now know is possible after that hugely controversial story from 2018 of the researcher in China who did it? What the new ISSCR guidelines, how they come down on gene editing of embryos is that we should not do it yet. There are a number of other panels that have looked at this issue too, and I don't think ISSCR is saying anything different. They're just saying the science is still too new and we don't fully understand all the safety of genome editing and so we shouldn't be doing it in a cell that's going to be implanted and potentially turned into a human being. And they're not saying we'll never ever do this in 100 years from now, but they're just saying for now we don't know enough. 
And so if that one is uh, a qualified no-no until we fully understand the technology, it does seem that the recommendations are more positive about mitochondrial replacement therapy, uh, this way of potentially alleviating these terrible metabolic diseases caused by incorrectly functioning mitochondria. Um, Again, something not possible in 2016, but demonstrated since. So yeah, researchers in the United Kingdom have since won approval to begin clinical trials of this method, this mitochondrial replacement therapy. And so where the ISSCR guidelines come down is that, again, we can do these experiments, but with lots of checks and balances and approvals. In the way that they said no on the CRISPR editing, they're not saying no here, but they are acknowledging that this is a thing. It comes with its risks. They want some more evaluations. I think there's lots of questions about the therapy yet and that they want answered. Well, Lauren, I mean, I'm getting the sense here that it seems that these new recommendations are really getting the ethical and and policy framework more into step with what's actually possible in the lab. Have we heard from any sort of ethics experts about what they think about these new recommendations? Yeah, I think we've talked to some ethics experts who have said the revision of these guidelines is exactly what's needed. You know, we never had some of these debates before because there was nothing to debate because we couldn't do these things. And now that we can, it's the time for us to talk about this and to make some revisions because we don't want to hold back innovation and science that could be helpful to people. But there are some ethics folks who who aren't quite sure. They think, well, maybe we haven't exhausted all of our knowledge in the space that we have yet, and that maybe it's not time to push forward into these new realms exactly yet. They thought that the public should be engaged a little bit more in the conversation before just changing these guidelines. But I think everybody agrees that it's important to revisit these guidelines because of all the developments that are happening and to kind of set standards so that you don't have people going rogue and doing things that they shouldn't be doing before it's time to do them and we don't know enough about the safety and everything. Nature's Lauren Wolf there. Head over to the show notes where you can find a link to more coverage of the ISSCR's updated guidelines. That's all for this week's show. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, you can drop us a line anytime on email. We're podcast at nature.com or on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.